Section 25 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Catherine of Braganza, Chapter 2, Part 2. The commencement of the year 1664 found Queen Catherine perfectly recovered from her long sore sickness and greatly improved in her English. The courtiers were amused with the pretty little phrases she used in order to explain herself. One day, when she meant to say that she did not like one of the horses that appeared meddlesome and full of tricks, she innocently said, He did make too much vanity. The affection the king had testified for her during the period of her sickness appeared to have been as evanescent as his tears, and he now devoted himself openly to the fair Stuart, whom he admired the more because he found it impossible to prevail over her virtue. Lady Castlemaine was furiously jealous of her youthful rival, and the more her own influence with the king decreased, the more fiercely and openly did she assert her claims on his attention. One day, being at the theatre, in the next box to that, occupied by the king and the Duke of York, she leaned over several other ladies to whisper to his majesty, and then boldly rose up, and walking into the royal box, seated herself at the king's right hand, between him and the Duke of York, which put everyone there, and the king himself, out of countenance. Charles, though he had been so tyrannical a husband to the amiable and virtuous consort, by whom he was only too tenderly beloved, wanted the moral courage to emancipate himself from the shameless virago whom he had ceased to love, and who exposed him to the contempt of his court. A new and very elegant open carriage, called a calash, had been brought from France, as a present to the king, which was the admiration of everyone who saw it. The queen begged the king to allow her to go in it, with her sister-in-law, the Duchess of York, the first time it was used. Lady Castlemaine, having seen them in it, demanded the loan of it for the first fine day, for a drive in Hyde Park, which was then, as now, the fashionable resort of the Beau Monde for carriage drives and equestrian exercise. The fair Stuart made the same request, and a most violent scene took place between the rival goddesses. But the king gave the preference to the reigning object of his idolatry, and from that hour the hatred between Lady Castlemaine and her became irreconcilable. The meekness and forbearance of the ill-treated queen afforded a strong contrast to the violence of the proud, contentious woman whom Charles had the folly to prefer to her. Catherine even hesitated to enter her own dressing-room without giving some intimation of her approach, lest she should have the mortification of surprising the king in the midst of a love scene with one or the other of her ladies. Then, too, she was unjustly wronged out of a considerable part of the crown lands in which she had been jointured, the king having let them, at merely nominal rents, to one of his worthless favorites, Lord Fitzharding, who was a creature of Lady Castlemaine's. The king had already exhausted all his resources and involved himself considerably in debt. The precarious nature of the queen's income, and the frequent defaults she had to bear from the exchequer, taught her habits of economy from necessity, and this at length degenerated into avarice, or at any rate, over-strictness in requiring her dues. She suspected all her officers of the same want of honesty that she experienced from their royal master, which obtained for her the unpopular character of a hard woman to deal with. William Prynne, who had been pilliard in the reign of Charles I, for his contemptuous writing against Queen Henrietta Maria, 
held Catherine of Berganza in such high esteem that he endeavored to put her in the way of improving her revenue by a revival of the ancient claims of the queens of England to the Aurum Regine, or Queen's Gold. He even exerted his antiquarian talents and research in writing a book on the subject which he dedicated to her majesty. Charles II was highly amused at the devotion manifested by the stern old roundhead to his popish consort and his zeal for her pecuniary interests, but he judged it unadvisable to moot the point of the obsolete queenly privilege to which Prince set forth her right, a right which had merged in the crown ever since the offices of sovereign and queen had been vested in the person of Mary Tudor and more completely so in that of Elizabeth. Queen Catherine went with her royal husband on the 21st of March to see him open the sessions of Parliament in person, on which occasion His Majesty delivered a long speech from the throne on the subject of the many plots which were said at that time to be in agitation against his person and the peace of the realm. He also spoke against triennial parliaments. Charles had been greatly annoyed by the publication of various caricatures against his royal person by the Dutch Republican Party. In one of these, he was represented with all his pockets turned inside out, begging for money of his parliament. In another, he appears led by two ladies and threatened by a third. The Queen's master of horse, Edward Montague, was dismissed by the King in May, his offense was supposed to be his great attachment to the service of his royal mistress, whose cause he always upheld with more warmth than discretion. The profligate companions of the king endeavored to excite his majesty's jealousy against Montague by saying he was in love with the queen and that his majesty ought to have a care of his wife. It was reported that Charles one day forgot his own dignity and the respect due to his virtuous consort, so far as to ask Montague, in a bantering tone, how his mistress did. Catherine submitted to the loss of her faithful attendant as a matter of course, but would not accept anyone else in his place till after his death. Catherine was a princess of very simple tastes and inclinations, of which the furniture and arrangements of her private apartments in Whitehall afford convincing proof. Mr. Pierce, says Pepys, showed me the queen's bedchamber and her closet, where she had nothing but some pretty pious pictures and books of devotion, and her holy water at her head as she sleeps. She had an illuminated clock near her bed, in order to see what hour it was in the night. She had also a curious inlaid cabinet of ebony, mother of pearl, ivory, and silver, which contained a small altar and relics, with all things necessary for her private devotions. The king's closet at this time was so richly and elaborately adorned with paintings and other costly ornaments and furniture that our author declared himself to be absolutely dazzled and bewildered with the abundance of objects of attraction. As for the apartments of his mistresses, they were decorated with everything that luxury could devise or extravagance supply, rivaling the descriptions in the Arabian and Persian tales in their splendor. Evelyn was disgusted with the magnificence he saw displayed by these women. Queen Catherine sat for her picture twice with Huisman, the Dutch artist, this year. She was painted once in the character of St. Catherine and once as a shepherdess. This artist chose her for the model of his Madonnas. Her best portraits are by Lely, and her most becoming costume is black velvet. This summer, however, she and her maids of honor affected silver lace gowns, 
they all walked from Whitehall in procession to the chapel of St. James's Palace, through the park, in this glittering costume, in the bright morning sunshine. Parasols being unknown in England at that era, the courtly bells used the gigantic green shading fans, which had been introduced by the queen and her Portuguese ladies, to shield their complexions from the sun, when they did not wish wholly to obscure their charms by putting on their masks. Both were in general use in this reign. The green shading fan is of Moorish origin, and, for more than a century after the marriage of Catherine of Braganza, was considered an indispensable luxury by our fair and stately ancestral dames, who used them in open carriages, in the promenade, and at prayers, where they ostensibly screened their devotions from public view, by spreading them before their faces while they knelt. The India trade, opened by Catherine's marriage treaty, soon supplied the ladies of England with fans better adapted, by their lightness and elegance, to be used as weapons of coquetry at balls and plays. Addison has devoted several papers in The Spectator to playful satires on these toys, from whence the now general terms of flirt and flirtation have been derived. The pastoral genius of Watteau and other French and Flemish artists was first brought into notice by the employment of painting shepherdesses in hoop petticoats and swains in full-bottom wigs with cupids, nymphs, and the usual machinery of antiquated courtships on the mounts of fans. The hostile relations between Holland and England rendered it expedient for the king to commence his naval preparations to maintain the honor of the country. Lord Sandwich was ordered to put to sea early in July 1664, and the queen was promised the pleasure of accompanying her royal husband to see the fleet go down to the Hope. King Charles himself thus notices her desire to witness this noble spectacle. My wife is so afraid she shall not see the fleet before it goes, that she intends to set out from this place, that is Whitehall, on Monday next, with the afternoon tide. Therefore let all the yachts, except that which the French ambassador has, be ready at Gravesend by that time. Catherine enjoyed the gratification of her wish, for Charles took both her and his royal mother on board the fleet at Chatham, before it left the port the last week of May. A few days afterwards, they went down to Chatham again, when, in consequence of the great heat of the sun, Charles took off both his periwig and waistcoat to cool himself, and got a violent cold, which brought on a fever, and he was obliged to be bled and to keep his room for two or three days. This year some attention was excited at court by the statements of Mr. Mompenson of the nocturnal disturbances of his house at Tedworth, Wiltshire, by the freaks of an invisible drummer, who had alarmed his family every night for more than a year. This story Mr. Mompesson repeated to the king and queen, on which Charles dispatched his favorite, Lord Falmouth, and the queen, her chamberlain, Lord Chesterfield, to examine into the truth of it. But neither of them could see or hear anything that was extraordinary. About a twelve-month afterwards, his majesty told Lord Chesterfield that he had discovered the cheat, which Mr. Mompenson had confessed to him. The king's statement was, however, incorrect. Catherine's passionate love for her own country betrayed her into a very unladylike breach of that stately courtesy, with which the science of royalty teaches princes to conceal their private feelings on all public occasions. Her dignity as Queen of England ought to have compelled her to forget the national animosity of a daughter of Braganza towards Spain, but the manner in which she permitted it to break forth 
at the first audience of the new Spanish ambassador at Whitehall, September 19, 1664, is related with evident vexation by Sir Henry Bennett to Sir Richard Fanshawe, the English minister at the court of Madrid. Three days ago, Don Patricio O. Meledio had his audience of entry in the quality of resident of his majesty, and having finished that, asked to receive the same honor from the queen, who, being discomposed a little more than could have been wished, and forbidding him in his harangue to speak to her in Spanish, he submitted to her pleasure herein, and continued in French, acquitting himself therein with all fitting respect on his part, which I say to your excellency, that the story that will certainly be made thereof may not altogether surprise you. Spanish was, however, Catherine's mother's native language and a few weeks after this weak manifestation of her hostility to that nation, she made her court put on mourning for her Spanish cousin, the Duke of Medina Sidonia. One cause of her intemperate burst of temper was of course the recent demand of the Spanish government that Tangier should be given up to them. Charles II replied to this requisition, that they had no more to do with it than they had with Plymouth, that Tangier was an ancient acquisition of the crown of Portugal, that he had received it as a part of his queen's dowry, and if they would not allow that, to give him a lawful right to the place, they had better tell him at once that they would come to a quarrel with him for it, in which case he should know how to proceed. Catherine went with her ladies in her state barge to see a ship launch at Woolwich, October 26th. The wind and waves were so rough that day that the Duchess of Buckingham and the fair Mistress Boynton, one of her maids of honor, were as much indisposed as if they had been at sea. The queen alone felt no inconvenience. The king, the Duke of York, and the French ambassador came in the royal carriages by land. The ship, which was built by Pet, was successfully launched and much admired by the king, who said, She had the finest bow that ever he saw, and the French ambassador gives a lively description of the grandeur and beauty of this vessel, which carried seventy guns. Charles behaved very graciously on this occasion to the veteran naval commanders of the Commonwealth who were present. He told the French ambassador, in his jocose way before them, that they had all had the plague, but were now perfectly cured of the malady, and were less likely to have it again than others. They then went down to the Nore in the newly launched vessel, and returned in the royal yacht, where they partook of a noble banquet. The king's carriages were to meet them again at Woolrich. Meantime, a very rough swell came on. The hail and rain descended in torrents. Every lady but the queen was seasick, and she, who had come with her ladies from Whitehall to Woolrich in the royal yacht, and was expected to return the same way, played his majesty and the gentlemen a sly trick, by stealing on shore with her ladies, and taking possession of the coaches which had been sent for the king and the ambassador, making it, complains his excellency, her pleasure to see the other unfortunates suffering from the effects of the tempest, and not caring what became of us. It was impossible for us to get to London in the barge, and we were obliged to get horses and carriages at Greenwich to take us to Whitehall. Lyonne, in his letter, expresses his admiration of the grandeur of the British ships. On the 3rd of June, 1665, the greatest naval victory that had yet been gained by England was won by the fleet under the Duke of York's command between Southwold and Harwich. The rejoicings for this mighty victory were dampened by the consternation that had seized all hearts 
on account of the breaking out of the plague, the most terrible visitation of the kind ever known in England, although many houses were marked with the Red Cross, and the work of desolation was rapidly increasing in the vicinity of the palace, the king and queen did not abandon Whitehall till the 29th of June, when they, with the Duke of York, accompanied the queen mother, who was leaving England on her journey. Catherine returned that night to Hampton Court, but the royal brothers attended Henrietta as far as the Downs. The plague speedily breaking out at Hampton Court, their majesties and the court left on the 27th for Salisbury. The queen and her ladies exhibited a new-fashioned traveling costume on this occasion, which Pepys, who saw them set out, thus describes. It was pretty to see the pretty young ladies, dressed like men, in velvet coats, caps with ribbons, and lace bands, just like men, only the duchess herself it did not become. The Duchess of York, having grown very fat, had lost all pretensions to that elegance of contour, which was requisite to set off dresses fitting close to the shape. It was agreed on the spot that the Duke and Duchess, with their retinue, should set off direct for York, much to their satisfaction, for the court was in so uncomfortable a state just then, through the rival parties of the Queen and Lady Castlemaine, that they were glad to escape from being implicated in any of the quarrels and intrigues that were going on. If anything could have recalled the king and his evil companions to a sense of the wickedness of their lives, it would have been the awful reflection that the sword of the destroying angel was even then suspended over them and sweeping thousands daily to the tomb. To the excited fancies of many of those who remained in the metropolis, the vision of a flaming sword reaching from Westminster to the tower seemed nightly present, like the meteor sword that hung over Jerusalem during the siege. The appearance of a comet some months before had caused the superstitious feelings of alarm to the weak-minded, by whom it was regarded with scarcely less terror than that with which the Anglo-Saxons had beheld the comet, which visited our hemisphere in the year 1066, on the eve of the Norman invasion. Charles II, who had a peculiar taste for scientific pursuits, and was the founder of the observatory at Greenwich, watched with great interest several nights for the appearance of the new comet, and the queen sat up with him twice, at different times, to obtain a sight of it. The second time she saw it. The first day the king and queen left Hampton Court, they slept at Farnham, and proceeded to Salisbury the next. They were followed by the French and Spanish ambassadors, and a great many of the nobility. But the heir did not agree with the king, who was indisposed all the time he was there, which caused him to leave it sooner than he had intended. While they yet remained, the news arrived of the unsuccessful action of the Earl of Sandwich before Bergen, in which Edward Montague, the Queen's faithful master of the horse, was slain, having volunteered on board the fleet in a fit of indignation at the injurious manner in which he had been driven from Her Majesty's service. No sooner was the news of his death received than the Duke and Duchess of York wrote both to the King and Queen, entreating them to bestow his place on his younger brother, who was the Duchess's equerry. Clarendon, at the request of his daughter, the Duchess of York, waited on the Queen to back their suit. Catherine was, of course, well disposed to bestow the appointment on the younger Montague, whose brother had attended her home from Lisbon, and had suffered in every way from his devotion to her service, but she prudently replied that she would make no choice herself of any servant without being first informed of his majesty's pleasure adding 
that she had heard that the Lord Montague was very angry with his son, who was unfortunately slain, for having taken that charge in her family, and never allowing him anything towards his support, and that she would not receive his younger son into her service, unless she were assured that his lordship desired it. She concluded by requesting Clarendon, if that were the case, to speak to the king as dexterously as he could, to dispose him to recommend young Montague to her, which she considered only just, since his brother had lost his life in his majesty's service. The chancellor preferred the request to the king, in the name of the Duchess of York, and said, The queen referred it entirely to his majesty. The king declared, he would never recommend any one to the queen, but what should be very agreeable to her, and that it would seem hard to deny one brother to succeed another who had been killed in his service. But owned that Lord Crofts had solicited him in favor of Mr. Robert Spencer. This was the Lord Treasurer, Southampton's nephew, in whose behalf a series of intrigues were set on foot. Southampton quarreled with Clarendon for having recommended another to the queen. Clarendon, to conciliate his colleague, endeavored secretly to countermine his former recommendation, though well aware it was the queen's wish to give the place to the brother of her faithful servant, and she would certainly have been circumvented, but for the arrival of the Duke of York, who took young Montague's part with so high a hand, that the king, who had begun to waver to the new candidate, decided in his favor." How difficult must be the position of a queen, when so many rival interests beset her, regarding every appointment in her own household. Catherine had learned to manifest a political indifference and perfect submission to her royal husband's pleasure on these subjects, which enabled her, as in this instance, occasionally to get her own way. If she had openly espoused the part of Montague, he would assuredly have lost the place, for then Lady Castlemaine would have insisted on its being given to Robert Spencer. It was unlucky for Catherine that not only her husband, but her Lord Chamberlain, was in love with the Countess of Castlemaine. Lord Chesterfield found himself so awkwardly situated between the reverence he owed to Her Majesty and the recollection of the terms on which he had been, while a widower, with her insolent rival, that to avoid the disputes in which he occasionally found himself involved, he resigned his place in Her Majesty's household. Catherine was pleased, when he took his leave, to express her sense of his character and services in handsome terms, commanding him to continue a member of her council. This was in 1665. The king opened his parliament on the 10th of October, in the great hall of Christ Church, when they voted him supplies for carrying on the Dutch war, which he had been compelled to commence with no better supply than 100,000 pounds lent him, in his utmost need, by the city of London, and at that very time he was subscribing out of his privy purse the sum of 1,000 pounds weekly for the relief of the sufferers with the plague. While the court remained at Oxford, the queen was once more flattered with deceptive hopes of bringing an heir to the crown, and while that hope lasted, the king reformed his conduct visibly, and made a laudable resolution of endeavoring to make himself worthy of receiving the blessing of legitimate offspring. So careful was he of Catherine at this period, that he would by no means permit her to return to Hampton Court with him in January, lest her safety and that of the anticipated infant should be endangered by an approach toward the infected metropolis. She was, however, so anxious to be with him, that she commenced preparations for the journey in order to follow him, 
when unfortunately as she was on the eve of setting off a disappointment occurred which detained her at oxford till the sixteenth of february the earl of arlington after communicating this ill news to sir william temple adds but we comfort ourselves with the hopes that the next time she may succeed better charles behaved almost as ill as henry the eighth on the occasion and lady castlemaine who was in the same situation as the queen was brought to bed of a fine boy was full of exultation and failed not to depreciate his luckless consort to her royal paramour as a person who never would or could bring him an heir the next grief that befell catherine was the death of her beloved mother the queen regent of portugal the news of this event arrived in london on the twenty eighth of march sixteen sixty six but as the queen was then in a delicate state of health and under a course of physic it was several days before any one ventured to communicate the affecting tidings to her the court wore the deepest mourning on this occasion the ladies were directed to wear their hair plain and to appear without spots on their faces the disfiguring fashion of patching having just been introduced lady castlemaine was considered to appear to great disadvantage without her patches one day in the course of this spring the queen told lady castlemaine that she feared the king took cold by staying so late at her house on which she boldly replied before all the ladies that he left her house betimes and must stay with some one else the king entering unawares while she was thus endeavouring to turn the current of the queen's jealousy to one of her rivals came behind her and whispered in her ear that she was a bold impertinent woman and bade her be gone out of the court and not come again till he sent for her for a wonder she obeyed but said in her rage she would be even with the king and print his letters a threat which always rendered charles submissive so completely was he in her power so that he who as clarendon observes could not endure the imputation of being governed by his wife or prime minister permitted himself to be called fool or any other degrading epithet this woman chose to bestow on him it was vainly hoped that this quarrel was definitive but in a day or two lady castlemaine sent to inquire if she might send for her furniture from the palace to her new lodging the king replied that she must come and fetch them herself which she did a reconciliation took place and charles was more estranged from his wife than ever in july the queen and her ladies visited tunbridge wells again and spent some weeks there this place which the patronage of catherine of berganza had rendered the resort of the beaumont of the seventeenth century is described by a contemporary who made one of the gay throng by whom it was frequented at this season as the place of all europe the most rural and simple and at the same time the most lively and agreeable the company are all accommodated with lodgings says he in little clean convenient habitations that lie scattered from each other a mile and a half round the wells where the company meet in the morning this place consists of a long walk shaded by spreading trees under which they walk while they are drinking the waters on one side of this walk is a long row of shops plentifully stocked with toys and ornamental goods where there is raffling on the other side is the market as soon as the evening comes every one quits his or her little palace to assemble on the bowling green where in the open air those who choose dance on a turf more soft and smooth than the finest carpet in the world 
Such was Tunbridge Wells, and the manner of life led there in the days when the amiable and neglected queen of Charles the Second sought to beguile her cares in Greece by mingling in the diversions of her subjects, and endeavoring to increase the enjoyment of those around her by dispensing with the ceremonies that were due to her rank. There was dancing every night at her house, because the physicians recommended it to those who drank the waters, and poor Catherine took excessive delight in this exercise, although her figure by no means fitted her to enter the list to advantage in such exhibitions with the graceful Francis Stuart, the stately Castlemaine, and the other beauties of the court. She had learned, however, the difficult lesson of concealing any uneasy emotion she might feel when she saw her royal husband devoting all his time and attention to one or other of her rivals. Apparently, she entered into the frolic tone of the place with hearty good humor, and made it her chief study to divert the king from dwelling too long on any object of attraction by the perpetual round of amusements she devised. Unfortunately, she sent for the players to Tunbridge Wells, which led to the disgraceful intimacies between His Majesty and two of the actresses, Mrs. Davies and the celebrated Nell Gwynne. Ere long Charles outraged all decency by appointing the latter, whom Evelyn justly terms, an impudent comedian, as one of the bedchamber women to his royal consort, an office for which her low-breeding, ribald language, and shameless way of life rendered her notoriously unfit. The aspect of public affairs was peculiarly gloomy at this crisis. The commerce of England had for the last year been wholly destroyed by the plague. Death and sorrow and poverty had rendered all homes desolate. The distress which followed this national visitation had caused a complete failure in the supplies voted by the Parliament, it having been found impossible to collect the taxes, and the country was involved in a war both with Holland and France, a war that was unfairly carried on by attempts, not only on the part of the Republic of Holland, but of Louis the Fourteenth, to excite an insurrectionary spirit in England. The agents employed as spies and emissaries for the diffusion of sedition were no other than the exiled roundheads and their connections in England and Scotland, pretended patriots, but in reality, the hireling agitators employed by the enemies of their own country to work out their dishonorable intrigues. The following passage, quoted by the present accomplished premier of France, Monsieur Guizot, in his noble work, The Course of Civilization, from the notes kept by Louis the Fourteenth of the personal transactions of the year 1666, will show the principles of the all but deified Algernon Sidney in their true colors. I had this morning, says Louis, a conversation with Monsieur de Sidney, an English gentleman, who has made me understand the possibility of reanimating the Republican Party in England. Monsieur de Sidney demands of me for that purpose 400,000 livres. I have told him that I could not give him more than 200,000. He has engaged me to draw from Switzerland another English gentleman of the name of Ludlow and to confer with him on the same design. End of section 25.